right, hey, let's pray together. Father, we love you, and we are grateful this morning just to be together as a church family, to sing, to celebrate, to pray to you, Lord, to, um, to now look to your word. And Lord, we ask for your help. We know that um, on our own, uh, we cannot discern these truths here and fully understand and apply them to our lives. We need your help. So would you come and by your spirit, give us wisdom and insight and understanding of the things we read to apply them to our lives. Lord, would you open our eyes where we are blind? We pray all this, Lord, for your glory and for our good and the good of your world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Hey, everybody, welcome uh, to FBC. We're so glad that you are here. If I haven't met you, my name's Matt, and I'm one of the pastors here, and we are just thrilled that you are with us, and I want to invite you to grab a Bible and turn with me in it to the book of Acts, chapter 2. The words will be on the screen if you don't have a Bible, but also we have some uh, hard copy Bibles underneath the seats in front of you if you'd like to follow along in the book of Acts, chapter 2, verse 42 is where we're going to be as we uh, just continue our study walking through the book of Acts little by little. Um, The book of Acts, if you're unfamiliar with it, uh, follows the four Gospels, right? Right after uh, the four Gospels, we see the book of Acts as this continuation of the story of Jesus. And it's the, the movement of the early church, their history. Uh, After the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, we see he sends the Holy Spirit to fill his church, to fill his people, and they are to be empowered as his witnesses in the world. All throughout the book of Acts, then, we see the life of this new community centered on Jesus and about his business and his mission in the world. Now, I listened to a a sermon recently from Pastor John Mark Comer, who cited a recent Gallup poll, some research that was done in America, and they found that 76% of Americans identify as Christians. 76% of Americans, if you ask them, hey, uh, how would you describe your faith or religion? They would say, I'm a Christian. At the same time, there were several other independent research studies conducted that determined that the percent of Americans that are actually following Jesus, meaning their lives were shaped by the teachings and the ways of Jesus, was actually down around 8%. Now, again, I don't know exactly how they quantified those numbers, but they somehow found a way to look and figure out, hey, who is actually, again, uh, following the commands of Jesus? So, again, 76%. Hey, yeah, I'm a Christian. Check the box. Put me in that camp. I identify as a Christian. 8% actually followers of Jesus. Now, no doubt here in the Bay Area, both of those numbers are definitely lower, right, than the national average. But what stood out to me about those two data points is the gap, right? The gap between 76% of people saying, I am a Christian, and 8% actually following Jesus, or actually having a life and practices and habits that reflect commitment to Jesus. Which means, even if those numbers are a little off, you're like, are they really accurate? Who really knows? Even if they're a little bit off, it still tells us that there's a big chunk of people in America 
where being Christian for them, being a Christian for them, is perhaps uh, something just like a, a thin cultural veneer. Perhaps it means I simply believe in God. Um, perhaps it, it means, again, something else, but it's not actually about walking with Jesus. Or maybe it means, hey, it, it means I'm simply, I'm, I'm not Buddhist or I'm not a Muslim or something like that. I'm a Christian. Uh, but it doesn't actually mean that their life is shaped by the teachings of Jesus. Now, this highlights, naturally, uh, a concern, right? Not good news, those two data points. It concerns our view of discipleship. Because according to the Bible, right, a Christian is someone who, what, is a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus, a, a student, you could say, um, a student. And Jesus is the master, the rabbi, the one who, who leads them. See, a follower of Jesus is one, yes, who trusts in Jesus, but also who learns the way of Jesus and how they live. See, discipleship didn't start with Jesus. He didn't invent discipleship. The word uh, disciple, again, was, was used in the ancient world. There were other rabbis that had disciples. There were other philosophers or teachers that had disciples, students that they would invite to come and be with them and learn from them, embrace their teachings, and then follow their ways. And so to be a disciple of Jesus means that we get to be with Jesus Right, we trust in him. But then also, we learn to live like Jesus lived, to learn his ways. But somehow, today, we have divorced uh, life with Jesus from, excuse me, today, we have reduced, let me put it this way, we've reduced following Jesus to affirming a set of you know, doctrinal statements and sentences on a piece of paper that we could check a box to. We've reduced it to that, divorced from an actual life of obedience, walking with Jesus. We've made Christianity sometimes more about a moment, a moment in time where I, I prayed a prayer or I raised my hand or I walked an aisle or I made a decision we make it about a moment rather than about the very movement of our whole lives. Amen. Now, moments matter. Don't get me wrong. Moments and decisions and prayers matter, but they're only the start of a whole life with Jesus. And so what we're going to do for the next couple weeks is we're going to look at the book of Acts, chapter 2, the end of it, verses 42 to 47. And we see what uh, a new community centered on Jesus is supposed to be about. Originally, we were going to preach uh, through this whole section, 42 to 47, in one sermon. We were just going to say, hey, for this five verses, we can handle that, right? Right, we'll, we'll do it in one Sunday, and then, you know, we'll be on to chapter three next week. But in kind of study and prep, just since God's saying, whoa, hey, what's the rush? <laughs> you know? <laughs> There's no rush. Why don't you slow down, take your time, because there's actually a lot here for us to understand. So we see in the end of Acts chapter two, again, um, the people respond to Peter's amazing sermon there at Pentecost, right? The Holy Spirit comes, and then Peter declares, hey, this is what's going on. Uh, this is fulfilling prophecy. Jesus is Lord and Messiah. And the people are like, what shall we do? And he says, repent and be baptized. And 3,000 people respond and are baptized that day. Pretty amazing, right? Yeah, that, that's a big number. That's pretty exciting stuff. But now the question is, okay, now what? 
We have this 3,000 plus strong community of people who have responded to Jesus in faith. What do they do now? How do they live now? What does life look like now? You know, do they just like go home? Like, hey, that was a great church service. Like, great sermon. We'll see you in a few months. Catch you this time next year, guys. It's been real. No, we actually see that there's this whole new way of life now they are invited into. It's not just a moment. Right? It begins this new way of living centered on Jesus. So notice how the passage starts, verse 42. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. So this Jesus movement, now thousands strong in Jerusalem, begins their life as a community centered on these things. Right? The text tells us, here's what they were about. Here's what the early church was devoted to. And it lists four things. But notice before we talk about even the specifics, that word devoted. They devoted themselves to these things. In the Greek, this is an imperfect verb tense. We don't talk about Greek grammar a whole lot here, but it's important here. It's an imperfect verb, meaning uh, it was uh, an ongoing action that's in view. They were continually doing these things. It speaks of persistence, perseverance in these things. These are, are things that are on the top of their priority list, right? Devoted is a strong word, right? I mean, there's not many things that, that reach that level in our lives, things that we could genuinely say we are devoted to. Right? I mean, I love cheeseburgers, but it would be a little weird if I was devoted to them. Right? Wouldn't it be strange? Like, Pastor Matt, he's, he's devoted to the way of the cheeseburger. That'd be strange. There's plenty of things in our lives that we love or care about, uh, but we don't reach the level of devotion. And, but here it's talking about devotion. Persistence. Prioritization. So if you're a note taker, you could write this really big in your notes, uh, in your bulletin or whatever. Write this really big. Following Jesus is a terrible hobby. Following Jesus is a terrible hobby. You know, man, if you're looking for a hobby, if you're just looking for some entertainment, something fun to do on the side, like a little garnish to your life, um, there are some way better options than being a Christian. Really, I mean, you could go, you know, pick up sourdough bread making. That happened a lot during the pandemic. Anybody? Oh, you got to pick up sourdough bread making. You go learn that. You could um, pick up pickleball. A lot of people in the church play pickleball. You could do that. Um, you could learn to knit or learn an instrument or play competitive bocce ball down on First Street or take up bird watching. Any bird watchers in the house? Okay, all right. Yeah, take up bird watching. Learn from them. Woodworking, perhaps. Roller derby, is that still a thing? I don't know. <laughs> TikTok videos, gardening, right, you, you name it. There, there's all kinds of great hobbies out there, but following Jesus is a terrible hobby. Don't get me wrong, following Jesus is the best and most important decision you could ever make. But just trying to make him a hobby, trying to play church, go through some spiritual hoops, it will leave you miserable. Miserable, because you won't experience the fullness of life and joy that Jesus invites you to when you surrender to him. See, following Jesus, it's a life of devotion to him and to his kingdom. Now, we, we do so imperfectly, right? 
We all stumble and struggle, but the idea is that this is the direction, this is the desire of our hearts, to, to fully give ourselves to Jesus and his ways. We have these four commitments here at FEC we talk about a lot. Worship, connect, grow, and go. These commitments that sort of shape our life together. And recently we've tried to put some uh, additional language to them to fill out, well, what does worship mean? What does it mean to connect? What does it mean to grow? And so actually in your bulletin, I think we, we printed them, that we tried to add some phrases or sentences to help us understand. So, for example, the one for worship in your bulletin should say that it's about wholehearted love and whole life devotion. Meaning worship, which is where it starts for us, is not just about a song or multiple songs that we sing, right? It's not just about a Sunday morning service, a temporary act. Worship is about this whole life devotion to Jesus. Out there, Monday to Saturday, in here on Sunday, all of it saying, God, it's yours. Did you use me and my time and my life and my calendar and my money, however you choose? So for the rest of the morning, I want to unpack this first uh, thing that they, as the church, were devoted to. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So first on the list, learning, being instructed by the apostles. It's central to the life of this community. At the heart of their time together was the teaching of the apostles, the teaching of God's word, and how it was fulfilled now in the person of Jesus. So the apostles' teaching, this, this took a few forms. I think there's a few ways we can understand this. First, this was the teaching about Jesus. So at the heart of this new community we called the church was this, this message about Jesus. If you were with us two weeks ago, we looked at Peter's sermon at Pentecost showing how this Jesus is the heart of the message. He's the Messiah. He's the long-awaited king who fulfills these Old Testament prophecies. He's the one uh, that has now been raised from the dead by God the Father. That this Jesus uh, in his resurrection now is vindicated, showing, proving to be all that he claimed to be. We look at the summary statement from the sermon from Peter in verse 36. It said, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Jesus is Lord. He's the risen king. And then in response, we then what? Are to repent, turn from our sin, trust in Christ, be baptized, receiving the forgiveness of sins, and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so the heart of the message is the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that salvation comes not by works, right? We saw in Acts chapter 2, quoting Joel chapter 2, everyone who what, calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who turns and trusts in Jesus will be saved. We're not saved by our works, by our good merits, by our performance, we're saved by the work of Christ and his righteousness given to us through faith. So the message of the apostles wasn't, hey guys, Jesus is coming back and y'all better clean it up. We better be ready. The message was in Christ, you can be cleansed and forgiven and healed. 
Now, scholars will point out that this pronouncement of who Jesus is, the, the preaching of Peter in Acts chapter 2, it wasn't like a one-time thing. Like, Peter got up and said it, and then they, like, never talked about it again. We see this consistent, uh, these themes, really, throughout the book of Acts, when the apostles would preach or teach uh, what their message was all about. And so, again, we talked about it a little bit already, but you could summarize it with a few points. One, they would always talk about uh, a short summary of what God had done in the ministry of Jesus. So his life, death, resurrection. Here's what God has done through the, the work of Jesus. Two, they would often point to scripture, showing that this Jesus fulfilled Old Testament prophecy, and these events happened in real history. He really rose from the dead. We saw it, we were eyewitnesses, and it fulfills all of our Old Testament hopes and longings. Third, there was a, a pronouncement or an evaluation of the person of Jesus. Right? So they talk about what Jesus did and how that tells us who he is. He is Lord and Messiah. He then is worthy of worship. We are to be baptized in his name. He is God himself coming to us, as John 1 tells us. And then fourth, there would be a call to respond with repentance and faith. So the believers were devoted to the apostles' teaching, this message about Jesus, the Messiah, and the need to respond with repentance and faith. Now, it's important to point this out because sometimes what we'll do is we'll be shaped by culture a little bit and we'll start to romanticize the early church or these first disciples, and we'll start to think things like, man, wasn't that just like back in the early church? It was such a sweet time of, of love and acceptance before we came along, you know, and complicated things with scary words like doctrine and creeds. And, you know, it was all so simple, just about love and acceptance, and then we came along and got our suits on and our monocles, and we started twisting our mustaches, saying, how can we complicate this and start to exclude some people? Christians used to be so nice back in the day. And now we're just, we're exclusive and are dividing over doctrine and things like that. Ever maybe felt a sentiment like that? I just want you to notice that from day one, the church was committed to the apostles' teaching this message about Jesus and the Messiah, the need to repent and respond, drawing clear lines about life in Christ and life not with Christ and the implications of it. And they were passionate and joyful about it. They weren't stuffy with their suits and monocles, but they were clear that this means something and that if you reject Jesus and his ways, man, we love you and we are going to serve you and pour out our lives for your good and we want the best for you. We want to love you as our neighbors and we're, we're glad that you are here, but we are not going to pretend like that's not a big deal. The message of the gospel and a proper response to the gospel was at the heart of the teaching of the apostles and of the early church and that's the, at the heart of who we are today. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching about Jesus and our need to respond. Now, notice they're also devoted to, I would say, um, the teaching of Jesus. Not just the apostles' teaching about Jesus, who's, who he is and here's how you should respond, but also uh, the teaching of Jesus, meaning this community is 
intended to now live out the commands of Jesus. Um, Think about it. Look back with me at uh, Matthew 28, the Great Commission, the last few verses of Matthew's gospel. He says this to his apostles. It says, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So, the Great Commission. Go, make disciples. We already talked about that. What's a disciple? Right? It's a follower, one who follows after, a student of the master, you could say. Make disciples, baptizing them. And then, verse 20, again, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Easy enough. Right? That's supposed to be a joke. Um, (laughs) Everything, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, that somehow this community of Jesus followers is to learn from the apostles how they are to, to obey all of the commands of Jesus. That, that are to teach us in all of life how we are to walk with our Lord. Where can we start? I mean, virtually every sermon here, right, is about learning the commands of Jesus and how we are to live. So how can we summarize then what this would mean? A few ways. One, we could look to the great commandment, right? Matthew 22. Jesus was asked, hey, what's the most important commandment out of all of them? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So if the apostles' teaching was about the teachings of Jesus... No doubt they would have looked to what Jesus said was the greatest commandment, the most important of them all, that they are to be, as a new community of Jesus, a people marked by love. Love for God, right? We love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Wholehearted love, as our worship statement says, but also marked by love for other people. So in this new community, I think we could say that love would be the measure of spiritual maturity. Think about that. Love would be the measure of spiritual maturity. Sometimes we get it all all wrong. We think the measure of spiritual maturity around the church, well, who knows a lot about the Bible? Who has a lot of Bible knowledge? Who has a really, you know, great church attendance record? Who gives or who serves or who has a great status and and position within the church? They're probably really spiritually mature. Maybe. But really, Jesus shows us that the measure of spiritual maturity is to be love. Excuse me, I said that wrong. Is to love. To love others. You want to know who's spiritually mature? Look around and see who's loving others well. In the context here of the passage with the early church in Acts chapter 2, no doubt this call to love would mean this call to mutual concern. We'll see in the next few verses in the weeks ahead how they're actually sharing possessions, giving money and proceeds to the needs 
of those who are among them. They're caring for one another. They're generous. They're, they're praying for one another. No doubt this would mean the need to forgive each other, as Jesus taught. Right? You, put, you put really any number of people together, and there's going to be some problems. <laughs> right? There's going to be some interpersonal conflict uh, when you put people in a close space that you're going to have to work through. And so no doubt this early follower, uh, this early community following Jesus was no different. They have to learn to love and serve and forgive one another. And rather than uh, if there were wounds and they hurt one another, or they want to just check out and skip town or go to the church down the street, or there'd be this, this call to, to lean in, to seek reconciliation, to come together, to, to extend a forgiveness where needed, to ask for forgiveness where needed. One place we could start, too, if we wanted to get more specific, uh, maybe a homework assignment, take the Sermon on the Mount, uh, one of Jesus' most famous messages, Matthew chapter 5 to chapter 7, read through it on your own this week, and look at the way of Jesus, the commands of Jesus, how he's called us as kingdom people to live. And you'll read in there things like our, our call to be salt and light in the world. Uh, you'll read things about anger and reconciliation. You'll read things about marriage and sexual purity. You'll read things about forgiveness and love for enemies. You'll read about uh, generosity and giving in our hearts as we do that. You'll read about prayer. You'll read about how we should handle our money and how we should handle our worry and anxiety. It'll talk about the narrow road of salvation and the need to build your house on the rock, which is Christ. The point is that we should be learning to obey Jesus in, in all of life. Being a Christian, it's not just someone who prayed a prayer 20 years ago or walked an aisle or raised a hand. It's someone who has repented and trusted in Jesus for salvation and now lives this new life in him. So, let's see it again. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They were teaching about Jesus. They were carrying on the teaching of Jesus. And I want to just identify, take a, a few minutes to identify some pressure points for us today. Because inevitably, when the gospel is preached and enters a culture or confronts a culture, there are going to be places of conflict. Places where the message of Jesus and the word of God will call us to repent, will call us to change how we think and change how we live. This happens in every culture and modern Western culture is no exception. Jesus is going to call us to change how we think and change how we live, to repent. And that might sound scary at first, or maybe even mean-spirited to some. We say, like, why can't Jesus just be more tolerant? You know, like, just get along, let people do what they want, live how they want to live. Um, there's a number of ways we can answer that. But the one I'll mention right now is that he calls us to repent because he loves us. And he calls us to repent 
and change the way we think and live, not because he's against us, but because he is for us. See, sometimes we think that, that God wants to hinder my joy. And so we found life over here and we say, God, I don't, I don't want you to mess with my money and I don't want you to mess with my calendar and how I spend my time. I don't want you to tell me what I can or can't do with my body and my boyfriend or my girlfriend or my relationships. I don't want you to tell me what I should or shouldn't do with entertainment choices and my hobbies. And we think that, that Jesus is trying to take something good away from us. When in reality, he's trying to lead us to life. That actually these idols that we've held up and created in our lives, whether it's about finances or relationships or sexuality or money or our calendar or our comfort or whatever, we think that they're bringing us life and joy and Jesus is trying to, to free us from uh, really the bondage that they have over us. Right? That, that's what idols do. They, they hold us captive. They're things we worship or pursue, thinking they'll give us life. And Jesus wants to set us free. And so the first pressure point for today is just the simple message from the apostles that Jesus is Lord. That's the first one. And really the one that, that is really underneath all the rest is this declaration that Jesus is Lord. He's the king, right? He's in charge. He rules the universe. We are creatures subject to a creator. We do not belong to ourselves. This is the concept, really, of, of surrender. If Jesus is Lord, it means that I am not, and I am subject to him. And we often don't like that. Because we want to do things our way. We like to be in charge. If you look back again to Genesis chapter 3, when sin enters the story, you see Adam and Eve, and what's the temptation? They want to be like God. They want to be in charge and determine right and wrong for themselves. And so the, they take the fruit. And so it's this pressure point, this temptation to be like God, to be our own gods, that's at the heart of all other sin. Jesus is Lord is their declaration. So Pastor Tony, Tony Evans wrote about this well-known story, maybe you've heard it, about two ships in the night headed on a collision course. It was dark, so all they could see was the light from their lamps. This is the transcript of a radio conversation between a U.S. naval ship in 1995 and Canadian authorities off the coast of Newfoundland in October. The American ship over the radio says this, seeing the other ship again on a collision course. Please divert your course 15 degrees to the north to avoid a collision. The Canadians on the radio respond, recommend you divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid a collision. Americans respond, this is the captain of a US Navy ship. I say again, divert your course. Canadians, no, I say again, you divert your course. Americans, this is the aircraft carrier USS Lincoln. 
the second largest ship in the United States, Atlantic Fleet. We are accompanied by three destroyers, three cruisers, and numerous support vessels. I demand that you change your course 15 degrees north. That's one five degrees north, or countermeasures will be undertaken to ensure the safety of this ship. Sounds very American, right? That's how we roll. We tell the world what's up. Um, we try. <laughs> um, the Canadians. This is a lighthouse. <laughs> I don't move. Your call. End of transcript. Isn't that what we do to God? God, I don't like it. I don't like your ways. We're going to do things different. We're going to change course. God says, I'm God. I don't move. It's up to you. You can decide what you're going to do with that information. But I'm here and this is my way. So Jesus is Lord. We are not. That's hard for us, right? Related to this is the reality of sin and the need for repentance. Again, modern day, that's a pressure point. The, the concept of sin or that, that we are sinners in need of grace and forgiveness and saving. Um, I think we all know something's wrong with the world, but we have trouble acknowledging that, that we're part of the problem in our own sinful hearts and how we turn from God. Um, another place that Jesus' teachings are going to be hard for us is the call to, to love and forgive. Again, Jesus teaches us to love our enemies, right? To pray for those, he says, who persecute you. And what's our natural response when others harm us or wrong us? It's not usually to, to rush ahead and extend forgiveness. It's not easy for us to love people that do not love us. It's actually really hard for us to love people who do love us. Right? So to love even our enemies, Jesus says. Right? We instead want to withhold forgiveness. We want to hold grudges. Actually, um, we feel powerful often when we remain the victim and hold that over someone else, what they've done to us. Jesus calls us to love and forgive. Another place the teachings of Jesus are going to be hard for many of us is uh, probably one of the, the most talked about hot button issues, moral questions of our generation. What does the Bible teach about sex and marriage and gender? It's such a big question which requires patience and love uh, to walk through it, but the scriptures are clear. God has designed sex and sexual expression to be lived out in the context of a marriage between a man and a woman. And not before that. And not outside of that. That's hard for a lot of us today. Another pressure point is our call to community and life together. Think about it. As we see in this passage, Jesus is, is forming a new people, a new family. The church, a new community, not just individual followers uh, of him out there in the world. But one of our big idols today is individualism. Individualism and freedom, right? I want to do things my way, on my time. It's really hard for us to commit to a people and to a place. We like to keep our options open. It's hard for us to commit to plans for next Friday night, right? We're like, I don't know if something better is going to come along. I don't know if I should say yes or not. It's hard for us to commit. 
And we make it sometimes just about us or our nuclear family. And we don't slow down enough to live life in community and be known. And here's what's happened. Uh, Leaders and authors have been pointing this out recently, especially with young people. Here's what's going to happen. Is we're going to have these competing desires. And one of those desires is for deep community. Deep friendship. Genuine relationships. To know others and to be known. We all, we were made for that. We need that to thrive and flourish. And yet, we have this competing value for us. And that's freedom. And that's our own individualism. And what happens is our desire for freedom sabotages our desire for community. Again, our desire and pursuit of freedom sabotages our desire for community. Because here's what happens. We're a mobile people, right? We're transient and we, we move or we travel or we take trips or we fill our calendars with other things and we show up to church inconsistently, right? And we just, we do what we want to do or we don't join a community group or we only go to things when it's convenient for us. And then years later, we wonder why we're lonely. It's because community takes commitment. Relationships take presence and sacrifice. And for many of us, we haven't understood the connection between community and freedom and how we have to sacrifice often one or the other. Look with me again at the text. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. We've talked a bit about what this means, what their message was, some pressure points for today. As we close, just think about how we could practice this today. And we practice this same devotion today. Notice when the apostles died out, the church didn't say, finally, those stuffy doctrine guys are gone. We can lighten things up around here. Have a little fun. We can add our own spiritual insights into the matter and shake things up a little bit. No, instead they collected the apostles' writings and letters and combined them into what we call the New Testament. So we have here the apostles' teaching in the scriptures. We have their message and proclamation and we seek to now live by it today. That's why we devote so much of our time to the preaching of God's word in a, in a Sunday morning service. As we gather, it's, it's central to our life, the teaching of the word. And not only do we teach it and hear it and study it, we also sing it, right? In the songs that we sing, we're retelling the story of the gospel and the truths of scripture. So this is a big part of it. And in fact, usually when we hear this, hey, you should be devoted to the word of God, what we first think of is I should have a quiet time you know, during the week, which isn't a bad thing to do, but realize for the majority of human history, for the majority of the life of the church, people did not have Bibles in their homes or in their hands, on their phones. You know, the, the way that they were devoted to the teaching of God's word was by going to church. They heard the word proclaimed they, they, they shared it, they memorized it, recited it to one another. Um, and so I, just, uh, I hope that's an encouragement to you by saying just by being here, historically, you are taking a massive step in shaping your life around uh, the word and teaching of scripture. Now, we have our Bibles today. 
um, in our homes and on our phones, and so we, we should use them, totally. I think it's, we really should. It's, it's a great practice to be in a, a daily rhythm of, of reading the scriptures. Uh, it's part of why we, in our community groups, we go back over the text of scripture and read it together and seek to apply it to our lives. So that's another way that we live this out. Um, but it's, it's good to, to center our lives. It's necessary to center our lives upon the teaching of scripture. To pray the words of scripture over one another, to encourage one another with scripture, with verses from the Bible, uh, truths that we need to remember or be encouraged by. And one of the ways we practice this commitment to the teaching of the apostles like they did in Acts chapter two is by taking communion. Because when we take communion, as we're about to do as a church family, we're remembering the message of the gospel. We're remembering the broken body of Jesus and the shed blood of Jesus that is the center of who we are as a people. So when we take the elements together, we're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes again. We're reminding ourselves of, of the heart of the gospel and that we needed a savior, and that's why Jesus came. If you need, didn't receive the elements when you came in, um, there should be some in the back, and you might be able to raise your hand and someone will run one over to you if you didn't get the little packet. Um, I'm gonna pray for us and then we're gonna take the elements together, all right? <clears throat> Lord Jesus, we thank you for who you are and that <clears throat> you, you came and you went to the cross. Uh, you gave your body and your blood for us. You died for our forgiveness. And so thank you that when we turn to you, in faith, we are forgiven. You forgive us our sins. You wash us. You give us your righteousness. You give us the gift of your Holy Spirit and you, you make us new and give us this new life to live. So Lord Jesus, together as a church family, we now take these elements to remember you as, as you told us to do. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. On the night he was betrayed, he took bread and broke it and said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. <clears throat> 